0: This evening's talk is called... Uh, can you hear at the back? Yeah. yeah? Okay. This evening's talk is called Nirvana for Everyone. <laughs> and... Uh, this is uh, named after a booklet published by Ajahn Buddhadasa who was a Thai... Um, Abbot, he was the founder of a place called Swan Mok, some of you who have been to Thailand may have been there, and one of the most uh, prominent and influential Buddhist thinkers of Thailand uh, in the last century. And he opens this little booklet by saying, when you hear the words Nirvana for everyone, many of you will shake your heads. You'll think that I'm trying to dye cats for sale and probably won't have any interest in the subject. To dye cats for sale means to colour cats in funny colours with paints to sell them, you know, to offer something else. Buddha Dasa then goes on to say that Nirvana has become a secret that no one cares about. We have turned it into something barren. And silent, buried away in the scriptures, to be paid, to be paid occasional lip service, while no one really knows what it is. He then goes on to say, that any reactive emotion that arises ceases. Any reactive emotion that arises ceases when its causes and conditions are finished. Although it may be a temporary quenching, this is the literal meaning of the word nirvana, merely a temporary coolness, something else associated with nirvana, it is still nirvana, if only temporarily. It is this temporary nirvana that sustains the life of beings, including animals, like cows. Anyone can see that if the egotistic emotions existed day and night without pause, no life could endure it. We are able to survive because this kind of nirvana nurtures us until it becomes the most ordinary habit of life and mind. Uh, this was written in 1988 and I only became aware of this, uh, it's a pamphlet really, it's just, uh, it's just a very short essay. I only became aware of it a year or two ago when I was teaching in, in Paris I think and at the end of my talk uh, a young man came up to me and introduced himself and said that he works for the Buddhadasa Foundation in Bangkok and he had the impression that what I was saying was actually very close to what Buddhadasa had taught and wondered whether I'd been influenced by him. (laughs) In fact, I hadn't. I'd been aware of Buddhadasa for many, many years but I wasn't aware of this particular idea that he had spoken about, not only here, but elsewhere. Buddhadasa's idea, basically, is that nirvana, although it has been elevated to the most transcendental and sublime heights, is actually something quite ordinary. It's simply a way of talking about what, is left when a reactive emotion, as he calls it, stops. That is nirvana. It's not something, therefore, that you have to practice for lives, or years, or lifetimes, uh, to be to have any hope of realizing. It's actually something that's immediate, at hand. Something, at one level, deeply familiar. Now, those of you who have read some of my recent uh, books or listened to recent talks will be aware that I speak very much now of the four tasks. And these tasks are to embrace life, in other words, the totality of our Situation at any moment, but also the totality of what it means to have been born and to be subject to aging and death, the great matter of birth and death, to be able to say, Yes, that's the situation I find myself in on this earth, but also to embrace the specific experience that is happening to you right now. Meditation, as we're doing here, being mindful and aware of what's going on, is in that sense a practice of embracing life. This is the first task that Gautama advised and suggested his followers to practice. The second task is To let go of the reactivity, or as Buddha Dasa calls it, emotional reactions, that rise up in reaction to the situations we find ourselves in from moment to moment. In relation to our existential awareness of being born and having to die, and so forth. So to be aware of how we react. How this is something quite natural, it's not something we choose to do, but suddenly we find ourselves feeling fearful, or attached, or angry, or very tightly committed to a certain view or opinion about something. And the practice here is to let go, to let go of that reactivity. That doesn't mean to push it away, or suppress it, or pretend it's not happening. It actually means something more like, let it be. Just allow yourself to be conscious of how you're reacting, and just to observe that pattern, that habit, those emotions, to come about as they do, to stay around for a while, and then, as is the nature of things they will fade away and come to a stop. The third task is to see the stopping of a reactive emotion. And this is nirvana. This is Buddha Dasa's nirvana. Uh, it's exactly the same idea. That nirvana is referring to those moments in our life when we're not being reactive. And in fact, we spend much of our lives not being reactive. We have long stretches where we feel calm and peaceful and purposefully engaged in our work or in some task at hand without greed and hatred and ignorance uh, getting in the way. and it's that nirvanic space that that stillness that groundedness that openness that affords us the freedom the capacity to engage in the fourth task which is to actualize or cultivate a way of being in the world a way of life generally in buddhism called the Eightfold Path in other words the way we think and imagine and speak and work and apply ourselves and pay attention and how we collect ourselves how we integrate our energies into a focused and purposeful way of being so I found it Enormously confirming that these ideas that I've been working on over the last few years were already um, being explored 30 years ago, 40 years ago by a Thai monk, um, admittedly a very radical Thai monk, but nonetheless someone um, who is very much embedded in the Buddhist tradition. I think in many ways we need to think of people like Buddhadasa as the forerunners of a secular Dharma. Buddhadasa also developed an idea of what he called Dharmic Socialism. Um, He was very concerned that uh, the Dharma no longer be something just to describe the practices of monks and nuns, but it become the foundation of um, a political uh, philosophy, a way in which we might live more fully and more responsibly as a society. Buddhadasa is also well known, notorious in fact, for rejecting the whole doctrine of reincarnation. So we have a figure like him, who to me is a tremendous inspiration, um, who's struggling, as I think many of us are, to articulate uh, what the Buddha was trying to communicate in a language, in a way of uh, thinking, that... Does not uh, conflict with uh, the way the other ways in which we understand the world today. <clears throat> so Buddha Dasa had the courage to let go of a great deal of Buddhist metaphysics uh, and so forth and so on, and his impact continues to have um, continues to play out today. So. Nirvana, if we think of it in this perspective, probably means that we have to stop, we have to let go of whatever other ideas we might have had about it. Um, Again, it's a word that is so widely used that it has come almost to carry its own meaning, as it were. Nirvana is considered to be the bonum, the highest good of the Buddhist uh, teaching. It stands for something like enlightenment or some kind of perfection, some kind of a final, ultimate goal where all suffering has gone. But when we go back to the early texts, when we think through what this term might mean experientially it turns out to be something quite different Nirvana is simply a way of talking about that dimension of human life that is free from the influence of reactive emotions beliefs and opinions Um, it's that open space that we, in which we come to dwell when the mind is at rest. In other words, what we're practicing on a retreat like this is to, get, to be less caught up in the stuff of the mind. Our stories, our associations, our worries, our memories, our fears... And more and more over the course of these days finding the possibility of just being at ease with what is going on. Nirvana is often used synonymously to the word shanti, which means peace. It's inner peace. And it's not the inner peace of the enlightened masters of the past it's the inner peace that is available and known to us already in our human lives as a kind of freedom a freedom from being driven by anxieties opinions strong emotions and so on it's also the ground of our mental autonomy. Um, Freedom from, let's say, being overwhelmed by a powerful emotion is also the site of our autonomy as moral or ethical beings. We have the freedom, therefore, in this nirvanic space to make choices without being pressured by opinion or what others think. In carving out this space, in cultivating this space, we're cultivating the space of our own ethical autonomy. I'll come back to that. So in this way, This non-reactive space is something that we cultivate, something that we try to optimize, to bring into being as we cultivate mindfulness and focus and listening and loving kindness. All of these practices are effectively ways to open up and sustain this open, quiet, still space, even in the midst of turmoil, even in the midst of all kinds of crazy things going on around us, disputes, noise, and all those things, but also, and this is in a way more to the point, also in the midst of our own inner turbulence, the fact that we have the capacity to be aware of how distracted we are, how troubled we are, how anxious we are, that awareness is not troubled or anxious. That awareness is non-reactive. It's simply paying attention. All of the mindfulness interventions that have been developed by John Kabat Zinn and the other teachers of the MBSR, MBCT, and all of the various offshoots of, of these programs is effectively based on this fact that we have the capacity to be aware of what's going on within us without letting it take us over and determine what we think and say and do. So whether you are a monk in a forest in Thailand on a retreat at Swan Mok let's say, or whether you are a business person working in a busy city and you practice mindfulness, you're doing essentially the same thing as the monk in the forest very simple but not necessarily very easy as we probably have discovered And in some ways, this uh, this space, this the, the, particularly if we think of this as a, in terms of it being a kind of a, an inner equilibrium and balance, gets quite close to what we might mean by the middle way itself. Uh, this capacity to uh, to live our life in a more balanced way, such that we are able to exercise a greater sensitivity in the judgments and the choices that we're able to make. So nirvana starts in this sense to become part of how we live in the world, not something lying beyond in a transcendent realm. I'd like to give you an example of this that we find in the uh, suttas, in the discourses recorded in Pali. And I have in mind a dialogue between Gautama and a wanderer who was called Sivaka. We don't know much about Sivaka. He wasn't a Buddhist, he wasn't following Gautama. He meets him on two occasions, uh, at least as recorded in the early texts. And on one occasion, he asks uh, Gautama what does he mean when he says that the Dharma he teaches is clearly visible. What does it mean to say that the Dharma is clearly visible? And in reply, Gautama says, let me ask you a question about this Sivaka. And you reply in the manner you see fit. This is a very Socratic way of going about things. Rather than the Buddha saying, oh, well, the answer to that question is this, bump. <laughs> he says, okay, let me get you to Investigate this. And see what you come up with. This is the Mayutic approach. The the teacher as midwife. The teacher's role is to bring forth understanding. To nurture understanding within the student. And here is a very good example. Of Gautama doing this. So he asks Sivaka. He says when you um, have greed or attachment or hatred or confusion or egoism going on in your mind, are you aware of that? And Sivaka says, yeah, sure, I'm aware of that. And then Gautama says, and when you don't have greed or hatred or confusion or egoism going on in your mind, are you aware of that? And Sivaka says, yeah, sure. I I, I know what those moments are like too. And then Gautama says, it is in this way that the Dharma is clearly visible. That needs a little bit of unpacking. Because again, we probably have all sorts of ideas about what the Dharma means too. But in this instance, it's quite clear that uh, the word Dharma is equivalent to Nirvana Itself, we find that uh, in the earliest account of Gautama's awakening, he just he talks of having arrived at this dharma, and this dharma that he has arrived at is twofold. On the one hand, it is the process of conditionality or conditioned arising. And on the other hand, it is the experience of nirvana itself. This is an instance where clearly when Sivaka says that he is aware when there is no greed and no hatred and no confusion going on in his mind, to be aware of that, is to be aware of nirvana, much as Buddha is suggesting. So here we have an example in a, a very early text that quite clearly to me is saying precisely the same thing, namely that this nirvana is something that is present each time, each moment when you find yourself in a non-reactive space of mind. We find, uh, in some is even a better example, although the, the way in which the story unfolds is not quite so interesting. But we find Gautama talking to a Brahmin called Janusoni. Again, I don't know who this person is that he says that someone who um, has experienced uh, nirvana neither plans for his own harm, nor for the harm of others, nor for the harm of both. And he does not experience in his mind suffering and grief. In this way, Brahman, nirvana is clearly visible, Immediate, inviting, uplifting, personally experienced by the wise. In the dialogue with Sivaka 2, we end up by Gautama qualifying the idea of clearly visible with these other adjectives. Immediate, inviting, uplifting, personally experienced by the wise. Th- these qualities are repeated as a kind of stock phrase throughout the early texts. They're applied to the Dharma and as we see here, they're also quite explicitly referring to Nirvana. So Nirvana is clearly visible. In other words it's something that we can see for ourselves. Just as Sivaka was able to to realise that, yeah, he saw that for himself. The non-reactive, no anger, no hatred, no greed, state of mind, that is nirvana. It's immediate, akaliko in Pali, which means non-temporal. Non-temporal. In other words, it's not something you arrive at through going through a series of steps and then one day over a long time of practice you get to this end point this is quite explicitly denied here that nirvana is actually right before your eyes right now it's here and now it's very resonant with the zen idea of sudden awakening as opposed to gradual awakening. It almost sounds like a Zen-like feel to it. The, the the possibility of experiencing nirvana is available to you in each moment. It's inviting. Ehi pasiko in Pali, which literally means, come and have a look. Ehi, here, pasiko, look. Come here and look. In other words, it somehow even calls to us in some sense. Uh, It's something we already kind of already appreciate and sense. Uh, It has a a quality that draws us. These moments of life where everything is somehow come to a, a momentary resolution. We experience A moment of of great balance, of openness, of calm, of stillness may not last very long, but those moments exert a deep call on us as if to say, It's possible to live like this, you know. This is a real possibility for our lives, it's uplifting. It somehow raises this up, a bit like, as we saw yesterday, the idea of mindfulness of the breath, being lending one's life a certain dignity. That's an Arya Vihara, a, a noble dwelling. Nirvana too is a noble dwelling. Uh, to be non-reactive, to be calm, to be cool, dignifies the person. And, finally, it is personally experienced by the wise. Or personally felt or sensed by the wise. In other words, by anybody who is wise, not just the Buddhists. They've got the monopoly on nirvana. It's saying something quite different to that. It's pointing to how, in fact, Dharma and nirvana are simply part of the experience of being human they've got nothing to do with some eastern religion called buddhism buddhism might provide us with certain philosophies and and practices and, and so on that can help us access these experiences but these experiences themselves are not Buddhist. Uh, They are universal. Sometimes we speak of a a universal Dharma rather than the Dharma of the Buddha. And that's the one that really matters, I feel. The idea of of this Dharma, of this Nirvana, which is a common legacy of humankind. Uh, Something that we all uh, participate in. We all have equal access to When we go back, when we look in those passages in the discourses um, where Gautama speaks about nirvana, he often defines it. He gives a very simple definition. He says, nirvana is the ending of greed, the ending of hatred, the ending of confusion. It's a phrase that's repeated endlessly. And again, it tends to get interpreted to mean the final ending of, when these things just don't happen anymore, that's that's the the nirvana that somehow starts getting out of reach, because, as we know, we are creatures who, by our own evolution, our own development, our own socialization, and so forth and so on, are creatures who do, who are hardwired to desire and to fear and to be angry and to be confused and to be selfish. This is part and parcel of our maker. So, nirvana is therefore something that is not existing in some special realm, but it refers to those moments when those other reactive patterns are not operative or have come to a stop or when we are sufficiently focused and mindful and conscious to see these things for what they are so even in the midst of an angry outburst we can still retain an awareness of a part of ourselves that is not angry the observer, the witness and we also find in the early suttas this same definition ending of greed, ending of hatred, ending of confusion applied to three other key terms in the Buddha's lexicon and these are amata which means deathless asankata which means unconditioned and parinya which means embracing these four terms nirvana deathless unconditioned embracing are synonymous they all are defined with exactly the same words so the deathless in English usually rendered with a big D or the unconditioned with a big U as though it's some kind of transcendent state just as we mistakenly think of nirvana are also ways of talking about this, this fundamental capacity we have to be non-reactive deathless was a term used widely at Gautama's time and it was more or less synonymous with the ultimate or with God or with truth or something like that. And I think what Gautama does is he takes the word and gives it a totally new meaning rather than immortality, which is how the word Amrita is understood in the, in the Brahmanic or the Hindu tradition. For Gautama, amrata or Ammata simply means the capacity we have not to be dead, literally, not to uh, suffer an inner death. I think he takes this word metaphorically. Elsewhere he speaks of reactivity as like as a barren or arid place so non-reactivity non-greed, hatred, delusion is a place where something can grow and live this is about life this is about flourishing a nibbanic awareness a deathless awareness although it sounds strange Is actually a way of talking about being fully alive, no longer inhibited or constrained or distracted by reactivity. And it is unconditioned, not in a metaphysical sense, unconditioned. This is a term to the unconditioned, which has got certain currency in the language of contemporary buddhism meditation and it's usually felt of as being something like the ultimate or the absolute, the unconditioned but when Gautama asks what is the unconditioned he says simply the unconditioned is the absence of greed and hatred and delusion in other words we can learn how to live in this world in a way that is unconditioned not conditioned by reactivity he turns the unconditioned which at his time was probably a synonym for Brahman or God and turns it into something pragmatic how can I learn how can I come to live in a way in which I'm not driven, conditioned, determined by my fears, by my hatreds, by my beliefs, by my impulses. It all boils down to the same thing. Nirvana, deathless, unconditioned. But the fourth of these terms is a little more puzzling. Embracing. Now embracing... Parinya is the term used in the first of the four tasks. Embrace life, or fully no dukkha, suffering, if we want to translate it literally. But in what sense is embracing life an absence of greed, an absence of hatred, and an absence of confusion? The only way that I can understand this is that embracing life means to embrace life without attachment, without fear, without hatred, without opinions. It is an unconditional embrace of the situation we find ourselves in at any given moment. And that is already nirvanic so the first task embracing life given the way Gautama understands embrace implies already the presence of a nirvanic perspective to embrace means to embrace life in a non-reactive way so this is one of the key Points that shows how these four tasks are completely interfused and intermingled. The experience of stopping, of nirvana, is already there in the first task, when we practice just being mindful and open to the world as it presents itself to us. So what does this actually feel like? This is crucial to the practice of seeing the stopping of reactivity. And we have a wonderful opportunity on a silent retreat like this to go deeply into the felt sense of experiencing this nirvanic space of stillness, openness, clarity and non-reactivity and I would encourage you as we continue this retreat every now and again just pay attention to what it feels like in your body to be non-reactive to be still to be present to be open But in those moments when the mind is not grabbing onto something, pushing something away, worrying about me and my problems, but is come for a moment at least to rest. The third task is about tasting or sensing that non-reactive experience. It's not something that's just going on in our minds, but it is something that is going on in our bodies. There are a very interesting series of little discourses of no more than a few lines each, which uh, we find in the numerical uh, collection of discourses. And I'll just read them out. There it's a sequence around the deathless, but as we've seen, deathless, unconditioned, nirvana are all synonyms anyway. Just listen to what is said here. Those who care for the deathless care about being mindful of the body. Those who cultivated the deathless cultivated being mindful of the body. Those who understand the deathless understand being mindful of the body. Those who behold the deathless behold being mindful of the body. It's as though the Buddha, and these are only a handful of about 15 or 16 passages that say the same thing. It's as though he wants to hammer this point home that the experience of the deathless, the unconditioned, libana, in other words, this non-reactive awareness is also something that is present within our felt bodily sense when we practice. In other words, it's not just an idea. We're talking here about a particular way of feeling ourselves or feeling our experience uh, in an embodied sense. It's as though the experience of non-reactivity is taking place within our flesh and bones. It's, it's, It's grounded and rooted in our bodily awareness. And all and in addition to all of this, I've looked at it here fairly positively, Nirvana is something that is clearly visible, says the Buddha, but he also says that it is dudasso, it's hard to see. So it's clearly visible, but it's hard to see. In other words, it might be right there before our eyes, but that doesn't mean that we see it. Um, Again, there's something deeply paradoxical here. In the Zen tradition, they illustrate this with a metaphor. They say that the practitioner is like a fish swimming through the ocean looking for water. In other words, the water is clearly visible, but because we're so close to it, the fish is so close to it, it's it's the very environment in which the fish lives. It's, It's clearly visible, it's right before the fish's eyes, but the fish probably doesn't see it. This metaphor, too, I think, suggests something about nirvana. The deathless, the unconditioned. These are clearly visible. They are, perhaps, in some senses, the very atmosphere in which we live. But that's very hard to see. Hard to see can mean two things. It can mean... uh, it can mean difficult to see, in other words, it's actually quite difficult to actually see it, but it can also mean it's hard to see in the sense that it is uh, it, it, it's, it's unsettling and it is disturbing and it is painful to see it. The word do dasso, dasso is to see, do is the same do as in dukkha, it means difficult painful to see in other words perhaps one of the reasons we don't see this so we don't see nirvana so easily is because if we were to see it it would open up questions perhaps as to how to live that might be rather unsettling at one level we might find nirvana rather frightening because it reveals to us the extent of our freedom it reveals to us that we don't actually have to keep on behaving in the way that we do we don't have to keep on repeating the same stuff that goes through our minds all the time we don't have to be the person we are convinced we are it shows that there is a possibility to live in this world differently, to live in a way that's not determined by our habits, which are often very comforting. They might be painful and we might not like them, but at least they're known and predictable. They're comforting in that sense. Nirvana is actually opening up the possibility, the challenge, to live differently. To not just go along with what you're used to doing. I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to say as much as I was planning to about this. But I feel also we find this same idea in um, in non-Buddhist traditions as well. Um, we find it, I feel, in the Greek idea of ataraxia. Ataraxia literally means untroubledness. Untroubledness. Again, like with the with Pali and Sanskrit, a lot of these terms in Greek are are negatives. Ataraxia, like asankata, unconditioned, untroubled. Or even amrta, amata, deathless, in Greek becomes ambrosia, deathless. Same word, really, in the Indo-Aryan language. So the Epicureans, the skeptics, the schools of Hellenistic philosophy that I feel have the strongest resonances with the dharma, both see ataraxia, untroubledness, as the goal of their philosophy. The philosopher in these traditions is likewise thought of as a healer, as the Buddha is thought of, and both of these philosophies are forms of practice, asces. They are ways of living. And the purpose of these Philosophies is not to become very erudite or very clever but it is actually to heal the soul the mind, the heart and this experience is called Ataraxia Ataraxia is very close if not identical to the Buddhist Nirvana and yet here we find it uh, not in some text in Pali or Sanskrit, but in fragments of Greek that have survived in the schools, from the schools of the skeptics and the Epicureans. And let me finish with a text from Taoism. From this is a very early text called the, the Neye, the inner training or the inner work. It's 4th century BC, uh, exactly the same time as Pyrrho, the Greek sceptic, and exactly the same time as the Buddha, in fact, but in China now. I'll just read this out. The language is slightly different, but I think you'll hear the same, the same sensibility coming through. You must align your body say the authors of this text. Unify your vision and the heavenly harmony will arrive. Gather in your knowledge, unify your attention and the sublime will enter its dwelling place. The inner power will beautify you And the way will reside within you. You will see things with the eyes of a newborn calf. And will not seek out their precedence. In other words, you won't get caught up in speculation about where things come from. Again, a very similar idea that we find in the Dhamma. These two examples both I feel support the idea that the Dharma, Nirvana, deathless, unconditioned are actually the common ground uh, for um, these at least these three traditions, which curiously arose at almost exactly the same time in history, fourth century, fifth century, fourth century. BCE, and yet in totally different parts of the world. Uh, This is often referred to as the axial age. But here we find a very specific example of nirvana, ataraxia, the Tao, um, being expressed in different language, but clearly, I feel, addressing exactly the same experience Nirvana we might therefore say in the language of T.S. Eliot is the still point of the turning world that's a language that might be more resonant for us the still point of the turning world and that's perhaps the point on which to finish